Hello, you're listening to the 10 by 9 Lockdown Podcast. I'm Paul Doran, and as you hopefully know by now, we've taken 10 by 9 to Zoom, and we're getting together every two weeks instead of monthly. The stories are as amazing as always, and our audience, the best. We've three stories in this podcast for you, all on the theme of holidays. Remember those? First up is Jane Searle, and she told it at our Zoom by 9 on the 13th of May. For those listening outside Britain and Ireland, or in fact anyone under 40, Max Bygraves was a popular British entertainer in the 1970s, and we know how classy things were in the 70s. Take it away, Jane. At the moment, we're all going nowhere. The world has shrunk, well certainly in terms of holidays. And yet when I was growing up in the 1960s and 70s, holidays didn't exist outside Northern Ireland very much anyway. When it was announced that my primary seven class were going to Majorca for a week as a school leaving holiday, it sounded dead exotic. I rushed home with my letter to give to my mum and dad, only to be met with a long silence, dotted with a few heavy sighs and mmms. It's only £39, I pleaded desperately. Everyone will be going. My mother, who would never have disappointed me lightly, put down the letter and poured me a rabina. It wasn't looking promising. Look, Jane, your daddy and I haven't even been to Spain, she said gently. It's not Spain, it's Majorca, I replied, and Mummy looked over at my father, who just shook his head. Majorca is an island of Spain, she replied, but anyway, the real point is it's a daft place to go with 11-year-olds and it's expensive and, well, we can't pay for another holiday. Your daddy and I have booked a week for us to go to a guest house in Douglas on the Isle of Man in July. We have to go on a big boat to get there and it'll be just like going abroad. She spoke quickly and then there was a break before she continued quietly. We just can't manage both, love. Daddy butted in loudly. What sort of bunch of teachers are there to go to Majorca? School trip? Our £39 will be getting them a free week of lying by the pool and going to the bar at night. Shush, Sam. Mummy waved her hand at him. The child's upset, can't you see? I ran upstairs to my bedroom, tears tripping me, and flung myself on the bed. Now I would be left in school with all the other saddles and no-hopers for a week of library work and colouring in. I was devastated. I'd love to tell you that in the end they changed their mind or that the ones that went had a horrible time, but sadly neither is true. I got to sit for a week in a warm classroom in June with about six other losers and colour in the United States of America. I still think of Florida as the yellow state. When they all returned, tanned and full of chat, Mr Hunter, the teacher, got them to make up memory scrapbooks. They stuck in everything. Airplane stubs, menus from the hotel, photos of everyone diving in the pool and bloody paper napkins from some amazing ice cream shop called Gionaldi's on the beach. We got to continue with the States. As you can see, I hold no bitterness for this disappointment and as my mother had so wisely reminded me, our holiday was yet to come. 
July that year wasn't great and we just about packed for all eventualities in the weather. Sun hats, shorts, sweaters, anoraks and wellies. Mummy packed the cases and Daddy packed the car. He should have worked for NASA. He was very spatially aware. He knew if you tried to put the wee blue case in on its side before you packed the large grey one with the dodgy handle, then you wouldn't have a hope for the Scottish tartan hold-all. It was an art. All packed, we got the ferry for Douglas and the rain held off so we were able to sit on the deck. The heads were blown off us, but if we went downstairs, I threw up. Those were the days when you actually felt like you were on a boat and my stomach didn't cope well. When we docked, I was both dehydrated and smelling of sick. Mummy had wiped me down with a wet towel, but the change of clothes was in the car, in the wee blue case. So no hope of a change until we got to the guest house. I clearly remember feeling like we were abroad. Emma asked Mummy if they used different money. She was only nine. And then if they drove on the same side of the road here. God love her. The guest house had been advertised in the Belfast Telegraph and it was supposed to have a sea view. Daddy had booked a family room, a double bed and two singles squeezed into the one room with a sink in the corner. It looked out onto the oil tank, but if you went into the hall, you could just see the sea from the window there. There was a bathroom down the hall for the residents, for all the residents on our floor. In the morning... Daddy gave us his usual speech about breakfast. Now listen girls, you eat whatever is put in front of you. I've paid for this cooked breakfast and if you eat it all now you won't be whinging for biscuits at 11 o'clock. Those cafes on the promenade are dear and I'm not made of money so eat all round you at breakfast. It wasn't a request, it was an order. Emma and I were picky eaters but we didn't dare decline a thing. In the downstairs breakfast room with the check tablecloths and wall of plates commemorating members of the royal family, we endured our own all-you-can-eat torture chamber. Starting with porridge, followed by half a grapefruit, whoever decided they were a fruit, and then the fry, egg, bacon, mushrooms, tomatoes, sausages, beans and toast. The toast was brought to the table in a toast rack, a device we had never seen before. In our house, it made its way straight from the toaster to the plate. I feel like I've eaten a slug, Emma said to me quietly. That'll be a mushroom, I whispered back. Just eat a big spoon of beans after it and it'll slip down. Breakfast over, we headed out to explore. It was a day for Anorax and Daddy wasn't too happy. Molly, what did that woman at breakfast say about the weather tomorrow? Maybe we would be better staying in today and saving our strength for a better day. Saving our strength? What do you mean, Sam? My mother sounded frustrated. We aren't exactly climbing Everest. We're only going to take a walk along the front with the children. By the time we got down to the sea walk, it was blowing a gale and the rain was pelting us with hailstones. It was indeed dangerous. Half an hour later, we were back in the guest house with the anoraks on the radiators and Emma and I lying on our beds with the Bunty and Mandy comics and two packets of Revels. If it stays like this, we might as well have gone to Portrush. At least the children could go to Barry's there. Dad wasn't one for optimism.
Look, Sam. If it's still wet tomorrow, there's a huge big inside adventure park called Summerlands at the end of the prom. We can go there. It's got roller skating, mini golf, dodgems. It makes Barry's look like a shed. But I bet it'll be a nicer day. In the morning, we pulled back the curtains and we could barely see the oil tank. The sky was dark and heavy with clouds. Suffering duck, Daddy took a step back in horror. The heavens are about to open. Maybe it'll clear up, Mummy said positively. Nope, that's here for the day, Molly. That's going nowhere. We'll get the children a few colouring books after breakfast and watch TV in the lounge. I think the test match is on. Mummy sighed, but it was another day indoors. The next morning, when we looked out, it wasn't exactly beach weather, but it had stopped raining and things were looking up. After the breakfast, we headed out without the anoraks. I got a big dressing down for leaving half my porridge, but it was all forgotten by the time we reached the park. Daddy loved seabirds, and as we sat on a bench watching them swooping down to pick scraps off the ground, he pointed out the elegance of the seagulls. That's Sammy Seagull, he said, pointing to a rather grand-looking one. What's that one called? Emma asked. That's Sammy too, he laughed. They're all Sammy Seagull. Same name as you, Daddy, we giggled. Indeed so, he smiled. The next day, the sun shone and we made the beach. By Wednesday, the rain was back, but we went to the Summerlands. Emma and I had never seen anything like it. An incredible glass-like structure. It had floors and floors of games and music and people. Finally, it felt like we were doing something or we were somewhere better than Mallorca. I would be able to go on everything and take pictures to stick in my memory scrapbook. In fact, Emma and I were so amazed by the Isle of Man that we started our scrapbooks while we were still there. Postcards from the big wheel at Ramsey, ticket stubs from the trams, the programme from the variety show with Max Bygraves in the theatre and photos of us on the rides at Summerlands. There was even a space where we sellotaped in napkins from the guest house. They were works of art. Strangely enough, even though Mummy was a sentimental treasure keeper, these didn't survive the years, although the memories do. And, well, to this day, I have never been to Mallorca, and it looks like my next holiday may well be in Galway, if I'm lucky. Mind you, I'm not complaining as long as I can just have a coffee and a croissant for my breakfast. Thanks so much for that, Jane. I hope you get to Mallorca someday. I hope you can get to Mallorca someday. In fact, I hope we all can get to Mallorca someday. Now, Jane had family scattered all over the Zoom audience that evening. It was so lovely to see everyone. If you want to join our event, and we have people from all over the world joining us, go to our website, 10by9.com, and register. And if you want to tell a story, get in touch, usual rules, no more than 10 minutes and true from your own life. If you're unsure of anything, just check out our guidelines on the website. In fact, everything you need to know about 10 by 9 is there. Next up is a newcomer to the 10 by 9 microphone, Ken Brown. He told this story on the same evening as Jane and all those stories, in fact, all our Zoom events can be viewed at our YouTube channel. So go check that out. But first, here's Ken. So um, this is a story of a holiday when I found myself uh, in the dark, in the desert, uh, in Egypt. So I was uh, on holiday with my friend Sam uh, on a cruise down the Nile 
and we had just finished dinner and we were having a few drinks in the bar and the cruiser had anchored up on the banks of the Nile really sort of in the middle of nowhere and there wasn't any monuments to be seen or anything and we had been told that uh, they had put the gangplank down but we weren't to go out it was just to take on some supplies and of course we had other ideas uh, particularly Sam and uh, we had our jalubas on which is the Arabic dress that Arab men wear and we decided that we would go for a walk so off we went down the gangplank and uh, started walking and of course it was very very dark being actually in the middle of the desert which we had appeared in so there was no street lights no nothing but there was one light in the far distance so we decided to go towards this light and we eventually got there and we were going down this dusty track and we're slightly worse for the wear after a few gins in the bar but anyway we eventually got to this what we would call a sort of ramshackle of a building and it was, seemed to be some kind of bar cafe not quite sure but anyway there was lots of Arab men particularly uh, sitting around chatting drinking smoking those big hubbly bubblies and uh, they, they looked at us with quite amusement um, but they sort of waved us in so we went and sat down and uh, we ordered a drink we haven't a clue what it was and uh, we had this drink sitting and the next thing uh, this very beautiful young Arab boy appeared uh, and came and sat with us and he spoke very good English and started chatting and then Sam went to the toilet and this young man said to me he said uh, could you do me a favor so I said to him, well, if I could, I would. And he proceeded to tell me that he had fallen in love with this man uh, who he had met six months ago, who was from Holland. And they had been writing to each other off and on. And he had invited him to come and live with him uh, in Amsterdam. And he said, I've got all these letters. Would you read them to see if this guy is genuine? So, of course, I was throwing three sheets to the wind. And I said, oh, yes, 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 yes. Uh, and then Sam came back from the toilet and I explained to him. And, of course, I thought this young man had the letters with him, but he didn't. And the next thing, half an hour later, I'm now walking further into the desert and we get to his village. And, well, I couldn't really call it a village. Basically, it was about six houses and sort of one street. So anyway, proceeded to go walk along here and we went into this house. I went through the door. Um, actually, there was no door. It was just a curtain. And we walked into the hallway and there was all these sheep and uh, goats in the hallway. So we sort of shuffled our way through these. And we went upstairs and went into this bedroom. And it was, I sort of stood there thinking this is quite surreal because the whole room was covered in 1950s wallpaper. There was a huge walnut wardrobe, a huge walnut bed, and a dressing table. And I thought, this is most odd. Anyway, a uh, young man went to the wardrobe, took this box out with all these letters. And he said, here's the letters. He sat down in the bed, and he gestured for me to sit beside him. So I started reading all these letters. And it was clear that so this man was devoted to this young man, and uh, uh, full of love, and he said, uh, will come and stay with me, come and live with me, 
and uh, we will have a wonderful life together, etc. And uh, he had businesses and his own house. And what struck me was, I thought, it's very odd because they're not written on nice cards or uh, good stationery or even reasonable stationery. They were written on those jotters that have the spiral on the top. And when you pull them, all little jagged edges remain. And they were all like that. And I thought, that's very strange. Anyway, this young man's now staring at me and I'm thinking, what on earth do I say? Um, so I thought, well, I can't tell him not to go and I tell, can't tell him really to go. So I thought for a moment and I said, okay, will you promise me one thing? If you do go, will you take enough money with you to get a return flight to Egypt? So there was sort of stunned silence. And then he said, thank you very much. He took the letters, put them in the box, um, put them back in the wardrobe. And he said, oh, now I want you to meet my mother. So we go downstairs and we go into this other room through another curtain. And suddenly we're in this room and there must have been about 20 or 30 women sitting around uh, eating and drinking and sewing things. And some of them had burkers on, some didn't. Um, and then this young man brought this lady forward and introduced me as his mother. She couldn't speak any English. Um, and she was all laughing and, and then we ha had to have tea. And in the middle of this room, there's also lots of sheep and goats wandering around. And then suddenly in my head, I thought, Ken, you are in the middle of Egypt, in the desert. You don't know where you are. You don't know what time it is. And the ship or the cruiser may go without you. And you don't even know how to get back there. And with that, suddenly I hear, Ken, Ken, Ken. And it's Sam. He had found his way there. How he did it, I'd actually never find out. Um, so I sort of popped my head through the curtain, which is the door, and said, come in, come in, come in, come in, come in. So he came in, and uh, so then he was introduced to mother, and we all sat around and had tea, and it was great fun. And uh, we hadn't a clue what they were talking about, but everybody seemed to be jolly. Um, so then the young man said, oh, I will take you back to your ship, walk you back. So uh, off we went through the darkness and the skies, of course, there, the, the stars are amazing. And we got back to the ship and we got back to the, the gangplank and Sam walked up and said goodbye. And the young man took my hand and he kissed me in both cheeks and said, thank you so much. And I sort of walked up the gangplank, turned and I watched him disappear into the desert and into the darkness. And um, I never saw him again and never find out if he went to Amsterdam. And what a beautiful, generous story. Thank you, Ken. Please come back with more. Potter Gatuma and I started 10 by 9 in 2011 in the Black Box in Belfast, and we will be back there as soon as it's safe to do so. 10 by 9 is always free and always will be, but we do have a Patreon page if you'd like to help cover our overheads and keep us going through this period. So a big thank you to everyone who has very kindly donated. Many thanks. And finally, our third story. It was submitted by Lynn Robertson, who Podrick and I met in Melbourne a few years ago and immediately fell in love with. She and her fiancé and now wife, Elaine, came to 10 by 9 in Belfast on holiday last year and loved it. And the Black Box audience loved them too. When Lynn saw the theme holidays, she sent in a story. Due to the time differences, she couldn't take part live. So here's a recording and there's video too on YouTube. Go Lynn! 
As kids in the late 1950s and early 60s, holidays for us were often with another family, mum and dad's friends, Auntie Elma and Uncle Bert. They had two young girls around the same age as my sister and I, and a younger brother, who I remember as a rather snivelling, whiny kid who we just sort of put up with. But Uncle Bert and Auntie Elma were really good fun, and we would often set off on a day trip together to the beach. In the early days, we actually went by train, but uh, by the late 1950s, early 60s, most families had cars, so we drove and arranged to meet at the car park of our favourite beach. On this particular day, as we pulled up in the tea tree at the entrance to the beach, Uncle Bert was looking particularly chipper. Dad glanced at him, then noticed his brand new FJ Holden car. Crikey, new car, Bert. Yep, says Uncle Bert. Since young Mark here came along, we needed something bigger. Have a look, Jack. So with great pride, he pointed out the external cheeky two-tone paintwork, which the kid, we as the kids loved, the engine, which was boring to us, the spacious seats, the pocket for the maps, the roomy interior, and Dad made all the right noises admiringly while Auntie Elma stood aside looking very proud and Mum looked bored and ready for a cup of tea. Then came the pièce de résistance, the huge boot. Look at this, Jack, it's enormous. You can get all your stuff in, your beer, your picnic food, your fold-up chairs, your picnic table, and there's still room. Dad was a bit jaundiced at this stage, stealing a glance at our little blue Ford Prefect. But he was a good friend and a good man and genuinely pleased for Bert. I reckon you could just about fit in there yourself, Bert, he said. Easy, said Uncle Bert, and in he climbed. He was quite a tall man, but he had a point to prove, so he curled himself up into a ball and said triumphantly, See, I told you. Dad, being a bit of a smart-ass, promptly closed the boot. We all had a bit of a relaxed laugh till Mark, the young brother, looking a bit worried, said, Can Daddy breathe in there? Sure, he's fine, says Dad, but probably time to let him out. He went to lift the door of the boot, but it was locked. Where are the keys, Elma? I don't have them, said Auntie Elma. They must be still in the car. No worries, says Dad, I'll just go and get them. So off Dad went to the front of the car, expecting the keys to be in the ignition. But they weren't. And they were not in the glove compartment, not on the driver's seat, not on the floor. Each stage of the search was punctuated by Dad yelling out, Are you all right in there, Bert? And a cheery response, Yeah, righto, Jack, I'm fine. Despite this reassurance, the jovial atmosphere somehow changed to something a little bit less jolly. Then suddenly a voice emerged from the boot. Jack, I've got the keys in my pocket. Whew, great relief all round. Uncle Bert could just pass the keys to us and Bob's your uncle. We can let him out. 
except the boot was locked and it was completely self-contained, not like modern hatchbacks where you can get to the interior of the car. So there was no way of actually getting those keys out of Bert's pocket and to my dad to secure Uncle Bert's freedom. Hmm. Mark was looking distinctly snivelly at this stage and Auntie Elma seemed frozen into a tight, strained smile. Or was it a grimace? Bert, when they sold you the car, did they say anything about another set of keys hidden anywhere in the car? No, Jack, can't say that they did. But there's a spare set at home. Home was a good two hours away, and the thought of leaving Uncle Bert in the boot, in the car park, in the tea tree, for four hours wasn't very appealing. Then Dad had a thought. Now you need to understand that in those days there was none of these nifty car locks that you just point um, like a remote control and there's annoying beeps and it's centrally locked. No, keys in those days were clunky, solid affairs. And believe it or not, they weren't actually individual or unique. So if you had a particular model of FJ Holden, there was a chance that several others with that model also had the same keys. It seems unbelievable today, but it's true. So Dad sent us kids off on a mission back onto the main road to hail down any F.J. Holdens that happened to be driving by. Off we trailed with a great sense of self-importance and renewed optimism. Anne, Bert's oldest child, took the lead. I know my father's car better than you do, she said primly. There were a lot of F.J. Holdens around at that time. The first one we hailed down stopped straight away. What are you kids doing out on a main road by yourselves? Where are your parents? asked the driver. Anne bravely said, My dad's um, car's locked. Oh, lost his keys, has he? Well, not exactly. He has them, but they're in his pocket and he's locked in the boot. Right, said the driver, looking meaningfully at his wife, as if to say, Poor kids having a dad with a skin full at this hour of the morning. So off we all trailed back to the car. If the driver of the FJ Holden was in any doubt of the truth of our story, he was convinced when he heard Dad's chant of, Is still all right in there, Bert? And a slightly weaker response, Yeah, OK, Jack. Uh, getting a bit stiff, though. The driver grinned at Dad mercifully asked no more questions and handed over his keys. But alas, they didn't fit the boot. Sorry mate, good luck, he said as he drove away. Off we trooped to the main road again and the same scenario was repeated two or three times till we realised that our chances of getting a fit were pretty slim and we gave up and went back to the car empty-handed. Things were starting to get a bit desperate. We kids could feel the tension in the air. While we were flagging down cars, Uncle Bert, by wriggling around in the boot, had made a discovery. The back of the taillight on the right-hand side was accessible to him in the boot. Dad and he worked out that if he could 
if dad could break it safely from the inside, from his side, Bert could sort of twist around and pass the keys through. So with gritted teeth, Dad smashed the taillight of Uncle Bert's brand new car. And after a few grunts and groans and wriggles from within, the keys appeared through the hole where the taillight used to be. Dad opened the boot and we all cheered as Uncle Bert unfolded himself and got himself out. He stretched, looked at Dad and said, See, I told you it was a big boot. Thanks so much, Lynn, for that water joy. And let's hope you and Elaine keep well and come back to Belfast before too long. And that's it from this podcast. Be sure to follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and of course, Instagram. Check out the website, 10by9.com, and of course, the YouTube channel, and get in touch. I'll be back with another podcast soon. Until then, stay safe. <laughs>